got it. Okay, make sure I don't press the end button accidentally because the end button is red while the stop recording button is very subtle. Exactly, exactly. I gave an Irish goodbye the other week. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Literary Laughing, episode 12. We know what episode we're on. By we, Lara means herself. Yes, because Amy always knows. <laughs> I'm just here for the beer and the books. The laughs. And the laughs, yes. And awkward moments with random silences that we don't know how to fill and we try to cut to make them shorter. Yes, that's, that's true. That's a behind the scenes look at yeah. literary laughing. Yeah. Long silence. Should we read now? Um, 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 okay. I'm trying to find my page that I thought was going to be really funny and I thought it was in here. <laughs> it's just basically remember that time in your English course where you were just sitting there thinking, this is awkward, and I wish that person wouldn't speak again. We only do the half of it. We do the awkward part. We want to hear each other speak again. Yep, exactly. Yes. Well, in this podcast, we read random passages from random books. I grab my book thing first. <laughs> I go first. <laughs> I was going first today. I Sorry. go first. We're organized. Well. First, we should give a content warning. We talk about sex, we talk about drugs, we talk about rape, we talk about... Um, a lot of adult context. Yes. Um, and Laura was explaining it and I interrupted her, which I do randomly, so sorry. Um, we okay, choose, we've changed the format in our Christmas episode um, where we're now just choosing two paragraphs and then we're going to read the last page and we'll talk a little bit about the author. If we want to, we might try and find random passages, but, or if there is just some really weird verbiage at the end, maybe we just leave that as the last little nugget. Yeah. Yeah. We could add more. We could have less. We will change it according to our many whims. Yeah, and you could always just contact us via email at literarylaughing at gmail.com or find us on Instagram at the literary laughing. I I checked it some time ago. <laughs> I get random notifications that we should be following a lot of celebrities on there. Oh. Yeah. Well. Mm -hmm. They need more followers. I mean, what would Kim Kardashian do without our likes? I wonder what book Kim Kardashian reads right now. You think she reads? I think she oh, reads. I mean, well, I'm she's getting sure to get her law degree. She reads. Oh, actually, you're right. I did see that she was, I thought she just got some sort of law degree. Oh, so she just got it? Because I, I don't know. The last that I saw when it, when I walked into somebody's house and keeping up with them was on the E channel. She was studying for it. So I don't keep okay. up with it regularly. Good for her. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Sorry. I shall begin. Yes. 
You have no business here. The words cracked like a whip over the air. Tensing, she stopped and turned, searching for the source of the angry voice. Her gaze swept the length of the gallery. A man with a shiny knobbed cane approached with very sharp steps, a sneer twisting his lips. His eyes flashed back and forth between Nora and Sinclair in a fiery display of ire for which she could not account. Astonishment rippled through her to find herself the target of this man's glare. She should not have felt such sentiment. Virulent men came as no shock. She knew well they existed in the world. In truth, they abounded. A couple years ago, Marion had been abducted by a man who thought his rights superseded her own. For all the good men that existed, there were always some who were content only when crushing a female beneath his boot. She braced herself, knowing more was to come from this particular gentleman. Amy, your face is hilarious. <laughs> well, she's like, oh, I was abducted by somebody, and that was that guy wasn't nice. I'm like, well, start with abducting. You don't abduct people. Yeah, I don't think it was her. She said Marion, and this woman's name is Nora. Okay. I don't know who Marion is. Indeed, the red modeling of his face warned her that he was just getting started. Females, he began dropping the word as though it alone was something objectionable. Do not belong here. He lifted his cane and shook the gleaming head in her direction. Seeing Clara went as rigid as a board beside her, his arm beneath her fingers bunched and tightened, and he took a step forward, clearly ready to intercept on her behalf, but she tugged him back with a swift shake of her head. She did not require a protector, and she did not need a public disaster. Neither of them needed that spectacle. The stranger stopped directly before them. The man was broad of frame and nearly as tall as Sinclair. She resisted the urge to shrink back. She was accustomed to judgmental stares, but no one, especially no stranger, had ever confronted her so very openly or aggressively. Even after Papa's death, when her family was at their poorest, she had been accorded civility from her fellow residents of Brambledon. Wow. Still keeping a tight grip on Sinclair's arm, she forced herself to square her shoulders and stand tall in the face of his glower. She had no reason to be frightened after all. I have just as much right to be here as you, sir. His face, if possible, reddened further, and she realized that she had shocked him. He did not expect her to challenge him. Evidently, he was not accustomed to such obs obstinate. <laughs> obstinate. <laughs> I'm, I'm just guessing. I'm just guessing based on oppositional behavior from females. Oh. I guess she's obstinate. Okay. Oh. She was serving up all manner of surprises to this man today. His mouth opened and closed before he spit out, impertinent shit. A low growl sounded from the vicinity of Sinclair beside her. She gave his arm a reassuring squeeze. She sensed as much as she observed passerby stopped to gawk at them and the spectacle they were creating. She needed to do her best to keep things from escalating even more. Why? She asked in an even voice. Because I dare to improve my mind. If he could address her so rudely, then she could resort to bluntness, too. What are you so afraid of, that women might gain the wisdom to rise up against men like you? One of the nearby gawkers pointed at them, and she overheard the whispered, Birchwood. Apparently, people were accurately identifying and connecting Sinclair to Birchwood. The man, still resembling an apoplectic fish, turned on Sinclair then. Get your woman in hand, Sarah. She like... <laughs> I don't know. She needs a tighter bridle. 
Outrage flared through her, constricting her chest. She opened her mouth to unleash on him, but Sinclair beat her to it, replying in a mockingly genial voice. She's not my woman, sir. She's her own person, and the last time I verified... Wait, let me be certain. He stepped back from Nora and scrutinized her. Pinching his chin, he looked her up and down leisurely. It appears she's no horse in need of bridling. She looks quite human to me. Well, I counted at least four cliches in that whole two pages. I don't know if maybe I missed a couple. Let's hear them. Okay. So she um, comes from a poor family that lost their money. So now she's also with a man that probably has money, I'm guessing. But since people knew his name. Oh, I, so there's more than that. There's like at least five or six. Then they're meeting the man. So she goes into this place because she, she loves reading probably and learning. And he wants to show her this place. But then they run into the man, which is literally the old man. And that is the establishment and, and how dare, and how dare they. So this is when she gets to show off her feminism and he gets to show off his feminism, which makes them even better love match. And she doesn't need him because she doesn't really need a man because she's an independent woman. So she gets to show that she's a strong independent woman in this day and age. And she gets to make an elderly man look like an idiot because you know what? He's not woke enough. So I don't know if he's elderly. <laughs> he has a cane. Well, this is the time. Older. This is the time in which many men carry canes. Okay, so he's he's a, a man of an age where he has a cane, and that could just be a fashion. In fact, kid. you may even guess this man's title that she's with. Just he's just a lord. He's a lord. Just a lord. Oh, is he an earl? Or a duke? A duke. <laughs> oh, a duke. Maybe. Maybe. I'm guessing he's a duke. I shall read you the back. She doesn't care about love, dot, dot, dot. Mm-hmm. Despite being surrounded by her happily wed sisters, Nora Langley prefers botany to ballrooms. Don't spit out your beer. And would rather spend a lifetime in her, her laboratory than consider affairs of the heart. As an expert herbalist, Nora has been masquerading as her late physician father for years, dispensing invaluable medical advice. She corresponds with people all over the world, including an old army colonel. But when the man shows up on her doorstep, he's nothing like she expected. He's a very young, handsome heir to a dukedom who suddenly threatens everything she holds dear. He only cares about duty, dot, dot, dot. Mm-hmm. Constantine Sinclair arrives on the Langley doorstep in a desperate bid to save the woman who raised him, the Duchess of Birchwood, only to discover that the venerable doctor he expected is a bold and lovely charlatan. Furious at the deception, he vows to reveal her secrets. Determined to prove her skills, Nora promises to save the Duchess in exchange for Khan to keep her secret. Khan reluctantly agrees, and soon Nora's brilliant, headstrong ways are throwing his carefully controlled life into chaos. What happens when the rigid soldier begins to lose his grip on his heart? No. What happens when the man bound by duty enters into his own con? 
So, front his... of the book. No. Because his name, they call him Khan. Yes. It's Sorry. Cool. Okay. <laughs> You're just like, and moving on from that age. <laughs> In the front features a woman, blonde. Mm-hmm. Of course. Um, she is clutching a man's jaw. He's right up next to her, probably an inch away. Mm. He looks kind of, I don't know, perhaps Spanish or Italian. Mm-hmm. Brunette, very dark hair. He is uh, naked, but I think she is too. And they're sharing a red sheet. And she has kind of her thigh up over his buttocks as he clutches her with one arm. They're both fairly muscular people. Well, um, she does practice botany, so. And this book is called The Duke Effect. It's from The Rogue Files, and it's by Sophie Jordan. This is the one that I picked up at my doctor's office and squealed okay. when I found it in the free library. Wow, that just speaks to me that she wants to be a doctor, and he is all about duty. <gasps> it's so perfect, because I found it at my doctor's office, and my doctor's yes. a female. Uh-huh. It came from her personal. This is perhaps her ancestor, except my doctor's Korean, and this woman is very much white. Oh. Anyway, right. Sarah McLean, whoever this is, says deliciously sexy. Ooh, nice. And that book looks worn. So it's very worn. So it was very well read people before like I got book. to it. Because I have not, I've read it a little bit, but uh, not like that little bit. Nope. It's not sticky, thankfully. <laughs> That's what I was going to go. I'm not going to smell it and see if it still has the new book. Don't put a blue light to that thing. <laughs> or black, whatever it is. Okay. My next reading I chose for Amy specifically. Oh, yay. Let me make sure it's here. Oh, yes, it is. <laughs> Let me say that in a deeper voice. You're going to love this reading. This reading. I'm so excited. It took her a moment to recall they had been discussing the outraged gentleman and the ugly scene back at the hospital. I don't care what he thinks, she responded. And then before she could consider it, she blurted out with, I care what you think. Her declaration hung between them, the words suspended in the heavy, charged air. He held her gaze, and she looked away once to the window briefly and then back at him. He was still staring at her in that way she felt low and deep in her belly. Of course. It bewildered her. She had never felt another person's gaze before. How was that even possible? She moistened her lips. I don't want to cause any difficulties for you. Well, I mean, how much time did she spend around other people that were almost dukes? I don't know. She was wanting to be a doctor and pretending to be one. Botany. Botany. (laughs) His liquid dark eyes seeped deeper into her. Since when do you care about being a pain in my arse? Oh, I guess he's British. I guess they're both British. Yes. I like the idea. I just have the idea of his liquid eyes just seeping in. So they just kind of like goo Seeping in deep into her belly. Yeah. She gasped and then let out a single hiccup of laughter. I care. (laughs) Something like that, I guess. 
I can. <laughs> Something that looks suspiciously like a smile shaped his mouth. Hmm. I know how important it is for you to establish yourself as the Duke's heir and bring honor to his family. That is true, but it has not to do with you. She flinched, even though there was no unkindness in his words, just cold truth. It has not to do with you. He might as well have said, you have not to do with me. It was tantamount to that bit of dismissal. Some of her reaction must have shown on her face, for his voice softened, and he said, my rise or fall as a future duke of Birchwood would be on my head. Don't hold yourself responsible for such an occurrence. That may well be, but I'm certain you do not relish episodes like today with people gawking and whispering and no doubt in a hurry to be off to gossip about you. Any talk, that bit of drama will subside, he reassured with a shrug. Something bigger will come along. It always does. The carriage suddenly jerked forward hard and came to an abrupt halt. Oof! The motion launched her from her seat and tossed her across the space directly into Sinclair's lap. It was an uncomfortable position. Her legs were awkwardly arranged, her knees on the floor between them, her face buried in his chest, nose bumping smartly against him. Miss Langley, he exclaimed, his hands seizing her arms and pulling her up as though she were feather light, which she knew was not the case. Are you hurt? <laughs> no, she gave a tremulous laugh. This London traffic is a hazardous thing. He hauled her up. I almost straddle you. <laughs> he hauled her up higher against him, plopping her down on his lap. Thankfully, it eased the discomfort of her cramped legs as he settled her over him, however much inappropriate. There was no need for him to hold her like this, not any longer. There was no need for them to be tangled up like this, however cozy and exciting. And yet she couldn't move, and he wasn't lifting herself or himself away. I'm fine, she reassured him, releasing an agitated breath and rubbing at the tip of her nose. Concern was writ all over his face, creasing his brow. Those deep-set eyes of his so dark and intent churned her insides. His hands flexed on her arms, and she looked down, noting how very much she was splayed against him, indecently nestled in his lap, her skirts a great pile of muslin around them. We know about those skirts. Mm -hmm. There's so much skirt all the time. <laughs> she inhaled, sucking a great breath, and that was a mistake. He smelled so very nice, like soap and leather, and him, even with her hand over her nose, his scent enveloped her. His gaze flicked her hand and he frowned. Did you hurt your nose? Bumped it, she murmured. His hands pressed anew, tightening ever so slightly on her biceps. The warmth of his palms and fingers penetrated through the fabric of her sleeves. In fact, Oliver felt warm and flushed. She lowered her hand from her face, then not wishing to appear wounded and elicit more of his concern. His fingers hovered shakily for a moment between them. She was unsure where to go, where to land. As though compelled by the force outside of herself, she settled her palms flat on him, fingers splayed at the center of his firm chest. His heart beat strong and a bit fast. The medical doctor in her was a little bit worried about his pulse. No, I'm joking. I added that part. <laughs> <laughs> That's about like taking pulses. Oh my goodness. <laughs> just with her hand on his chest. She's just counting his heartbeats. <laughs> Be quiet. Just breathe in and out while I look at my watch. Don't worry about my nose. I've got bruised on your heart chest. Just 
touching him like this alone together in the shadowy interior of the carriage she felt small and feminine and soft in a way she'd never felt before her softness to his unyielding solidness she simply wanted to sink into him and take all of him in to let herself be swallowed up and consumed by him such thoughts were wholly foreign to her. She'd never felt like this, never imagined that she could. She supposed this was what happened to women and men alike when they cast aside their reservations. Desire, the overriding pull to fornicate. It was a powerful thing indeed. The scientist in her was intrigued to follow this through and see for herself what all the hullabaloo was about for research purposes, of course. <laughs> of course. And yet she could not deny that the woman in her was equally intrigued. All her most basic parts were sending forth loud signals. The very core of her pulsed with a deep throb that begged for relief, for pressure. Only this man was not one for dalliance, at least not with her. She let out a sigh. Unfortunate that, on multiple levels, he was not an acceptable candidate on that score. For starters, he far outranked her, and then there was the fact that he was attached to a lady already, a very likable and lovely young lady, and he did not like Nora. Perhaps she should have begun with that. He might have granted her a pardon to stay with him in the birch woods. He might have treated her to a special day. It did not alter that he found her to be a dupe Duplicious, duplicious female? I don't know how to say that word. Duplicitous female. That was forever between them. He lifted a hand and touched her then, his fingers gently stroking her nose. Oh. Doesn't appear bruised. She shivered a little. Breathing became too difficult. She could not help herself then. She had to move and do something to answer the deep throbbing. She shifted and wiggled against him. A hissed oh, breath escaped him, and she felt her eyes widen in her face. Her fingers stirred, the tips exerting the slightest pressure on him. Their gazes locked, held interminably, and she felt like she was drowning. How could any one person have such dark, lush lashes? His hands moved then, landing on her hips, fisting her skirts. So much bloody fabric, he muttered. <laughs> that was the part for you. Thank you. That, that was... I, I wanted to add like, more and more into that. Yes. Yes. That, was... that is the moment she realizes he wants her to... Oh, I'm wiggling against you. Is that okay? Oh no, what what is that? It's funny because I flipped to the last page and it's like an ad for another book and it says, give in to your impulses. <sighs> Always. These unforgettable stories only take a second to buy and give you hours of reading pleasure. Ooh. <laughs> All right. Shall I read the last page? Yes. Yes, let's read the last page. I'm predicting that they get married. Whoa, seriously? Yeah. Oh, no, so oh sorry. He leaves her in ruin. That's how these. Um, so there's an epilogue and there's the end. What should I read? Um, which one is better? Sometimes the epilogues are good, but the last page is better. Let me read the last page. Okay. Oh, okay. I'm going to read a little bit before the last page. Okay. This is also a paperback, but the print is extremely large and far apart. 
So I feel like, so I have very good eyesight when I read those. Good. Congratulations. My mom was getting on me for straining my eyes. (laughs) (laughs) Your eyes are fine. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, okay, okay. okay. Nora, he took a breath and lowered his voice. Suddenly in this moment, it was just the two of them. Will you marry me? His third proposal, but this time done the right way. She shook her head. Constantine, you don't want... I want to marry you. She looked down at him, fighting hard not to enjoy the warm clasp of his hand around hers too much. Why, she demanded. You want to marry me? Why? A pregnant pause followed her question. Everyone around them seemed to be waiting, too, holding their breaths in collective silence. He smiled slowly, and she felt the warmth of that grin spreading like sunlight through her. Because I love you. That warmth exploded a fire in her chest. You don't. I do. He pushed to his feet and seized her face in both his hands. I love you, I love you, and I don't want a future with anyone but you. But you're going to be a duke. I am foremost a man. A man that can be whatever kind of duke he wants, as long as I have you with me. Amy's dying on the screen. (laughs) Oh no. As long as I have you at my side, I want to be happy, Nora, and I can't be that without you. Please make me happy. Let me make you happy. Constantine, she whispered. Nora, he said, say yes. Say you love me. I do love you. Then that's all that matters. Say you'll marry me and together we'll build a life. One that we both want. You and me. He pressed his mouth to hers right in the middle of the station in front of everyone. She heard a garbled shout of encouragement from Bia. (laughs) But she could not process the words and she did not care. All her attention was fixed on Constantine. Yes, I'll marry you. He kissed her then again to shouts and applause and the roar of a train engine taking his departure without her. He lifted his head and his eyes gleamed brightly down at her. You missed your train. She smiled back at him. I didn't miss anything. Oh, okay. How many kids did they have in the epilogue? Let's find out. Oh my gosh. Three? Let's see. Let's see. Let's see. Or is she pregnant? There's a four-year-old daughter. Well, the epilogue's 10 years in the future. Okay. There's a four-year-old daughter. I think that's it. Oh, they only have one child. Yeah. This is not us making fun of them, of this book. It's us literally having seen this book in different ways, predicting. Mm hmm. Yeah, just one. Just the daughter. Usually it's like, I'm surprised I'm pregnant again. Oh, I want to have another. You do? With my dukedom, we can have as many kids as we want. Oh, that's so wonderful. I'm so glad we have a great governess. (laughs) (laughs) That was a fun book. I can see why you were so excited when you picked it up. I mean, with this cover, the Duke effect. I mean... It had to be good. There's a, I saw a, this first, the spine, which is basically just a little thumbnail of their faces yeah. pressed into each other. I mean, it'd been better if like there was some beakers or something like falling to the ground around them. Yes. I mean, botany. Oh my gosh. 
No, they're naked in bed. They should not have glass beakers around them. It. She keeps red sheets in her lab just in case. And just in case. I did have a friend, feel free to cut this out, who had like a glass dildo. And I always thought that that, I was just like, hmm. No. I just... I was helping her clean her house once and it was in her bed, which was so because I'm like, I did not touch it. I just got lying there. No, you know somebody's coming over. You put that up. Just put that no. Yeah. Oh, so like the one thing I get concerned about, I guess I was reading um because I read Sex in the Museum. And so this is by a curator for the Sex Museum in New York City. It's a great book. Um, I've consciously decided not to use it on this podcast because it could come off as kink shaming and we don't want to do that. But, um, but there are some things that are just conversational. Um, the part that they were talking about with dildos and everything like that is a lot of it is just supposed to be, it's not even supposed to be used in the body. It's just oh, really? outside of the body. Yeah. So if you actually look at what the fine print says on it, they're like, don't put this in your body because of like chemicals or other things. Oh, that's probably just to cover their own ass. They know that everybody's using them. Exactly. But it's like, that was one of the things that I was like, oh my goodness. Like, yeah. Yeah. So that glass dildo is definitely probably not supposed to go in her body. Yeah, I don't think there are a lot of chemicals in glass, but, like, I just worry about it. Like, I would just think about it, like, crunching and breaking inside of you or, like... Yeah, but that's why they're, like, this is actually just a piece of art. Why are you putting it inside your body? Exactly. hmm Yeah. Gross. Anyways. It's art. <laughs> Not something I would decorate my own house with, but, yeah, there are people that would probably it's enjoy that. Good. Very cool. Um, so this might sound a little bit familiar to you, but it was one of the books I had. This is from my Austin stash, original Austin stash. Okay. Okay. The three lords of Stormhold got out of the coach and stretched their cramped legs. Faces peered at them through the bottled glass windows of the inn. The innkeeper, who is a choleric gnome of poor disposition, looked out the door. We'll need beds aired and a pot of mutton stew on the fire, he called. How many beds to be aired? asked Letitia, the chambermaid from the stairwell. Three, said the gnome. I'll wager they'll have their coachmen sleep with the horses. Three indeed, whispered Tilly, the pot girl, to Lacey, the ostler, when anyone could see a full seven of those fine gentlemen standing in the road. But when the lords of Stormhold entered, there were but three of them, and they announced that their coachmen would sleep in the stables. Dinner was mutton stew and bread loaves so hot and fresh they exhaled steam as they were cracked open, and each of the lords took an unopened bottle of the Baragundian, Baragundian, oh man, Another word, Baragundian. <laughs> yes, sure. One of those fantasy words here, wine. But none of the lords would share a bottle with his fellows, nor even permit the wine to be poured from the bottle into a goblet. This scandalized the gnome, who was of the opinion not 
however uttered in the hearing of his guests, that the wine should be permitted to breathe. Their coachman ate his bowl of stew and drank two pots of ale and went to sleep in the stables. The three brothers went to their respective rooms and barred the doors. Tertius had slipped a silver coin to Letitia, the chambermaid, when she had brought him the warm pan for his bed. So he was not surprised at all when shortly before midnight there was a tap tapping on his door. She wore one piece white chemise and curtsied to him as he opened the door and smiled shyly. She held a bottle of wine in her hands. He locked the door behind him and led her to the bed, where having first made her remove her chemise and having examined her body by candlelight and having kissed her on the forehead, lips, nipples, navel, and toes, and having extinguished the candle, he made love to her without speaking in the pale moonlight. After some time, he grunted and was still. There, lovey, was that good now, said Letitia. Yes, said Tertius, warily as if her words guarded some trap. It was. Would you be wanting another turn before I leave? In reply, Tertius pointed between his legs. Letitia giggled. We can have him upstanding again in a twinkling, she said, and she pulled out the cork from the bottle of wine she had carried in and had placed beside the bed and passed it to Tertius. He grinned at her and gulped down some wine, then pulled her to him. I bet that feels good, she said to him. Now, lovey, this time let me show you how I like it. Why, whatever is the matter? For Lord Tertius of Stormhold was writhing back and forth on the bed, his eyes wide, his breathing labored. That wine, he gasped. Where did you get it? Your brother, said Letty. I met him on the stairs. He told me it was a fine restorative and stiffener, and it would provide us with a night we should never forget. And so it has, breathed Tertius, and he twitched once, twice, three times, and then was stiff and very sick. Tertius heard Letitia begin to scream, as if it from a very long way away. He was conscious of four familiar presences standing with him in the shadows beside the wall. She was very beautiful, whispered Secondus, and Letitia thought she heard the curtains rustle. Septimus is most crafty, said Quintus. That was the same self-same preparation of Banbury's he slipped into my dish of eels and Letitia thought she heard the wind howling down from the mountain crags. She opened the door to the household, woken by her screams, and a search ensued. Lord Septimus, however, was nowhere to be found, and one of his black stallions was gone from the stable, in which the coachman slept and snored and could not be wakened. Lord Primus was in a foul mood when he arose the next morning. He declined to have Letitia put to death, stating she was as much a victim of Septimus's craft as Tertius has been but ordered that she accompany Tertius's body back to the castle of Stormhold. He left her one black horse to carry the body and a pouch of silver, silver coins. It was enough to pay a villager of Nottaway to travel with her to ensure no wolves made off with the horse or his brother's remains and to pay off the coachman when he finally awoke. And then alone in the coach, pulled by a team of four coal black stallions, Lord Primus left the village of Nottaway and significantly worse temper than he had arrived there. Wow. Mm -hmm. So he killed his own brother? Yes. And he had tried to kill his other brother before? He succeeded. Oh. Those were brothers' ghosts. That's why she wasn't responding, and she, like, that's why it's like she thought this was rustling or this was coming from somewhere else. It's because it was the brother's ghosts in the room being like, oh, that's how he killed me. 
Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. Very subtle. Okay. Read me the back of this book. This is intriguing. Mm-hmm. Young Tristan Thorne will do anything to win the cold heart of beautiful Victoria. Even fetch her the star they watch fall from the night sky. But to do so, he must enter the unexplored lands on the other side of the ancient wall that gives their tiny village its name. Beyond the old stone wall, Trist- Tristran learns lies fairies, lies fairy, where nothing, not even a fallen star, is what he imagined. From number one New York Times bestselling author Neil Gaiman comes a remarkable quest into the dark and miraculous and pursuit of love and the utterly impossible. Neil Gaiman. Mm-hmm. Neil- oh, I, rem- I kind of remember you picking up this book. Mm-hmm. It's called Stardust. Yes. Yes. It's actually a movie as well. Yes. I, I'm, I don't think I've seen the movie, but I know that it's a movie, if that makes sense. I do like Neil Gaiman. Yeah, I mean, he's gotten so many awards. He's done so many mm-hmm. things. One of Bruce's favorite children's books is written by him, randomly. Yeah, yeah. so, I mean, I picked up this book because I thought it would be an easy read because there's so many great passages to read outside of our text from this book because mm-hmm. this story is so interwoven and random that it's there's so many characters. It's really good. So I, oh, so the front of the book. So the whole book is Plum. And at the top in gold, his name is really big. And then there's the falling star. And then it just says Stardust at the bottom. So that's it. Yes, classic cover from Neil Gaiman, actually. Mm -hmm. Very simple, very, Mm -hmm. very nice. I feel as though he almost always has his titles in that font, too, and his name. Hmm. Why not leave a stamp? Um, but yeah, I was like, oh, it's a nice warm book from the library. Yes, I love getting books from the library. Yeah, so this is like, like retired books, I mean. Yeah, this is a retired book um, from the University Hills branch in Austin Public Library. Lots of great reviews on this. Neil Gaiman, I, there's a lot to say about him. I guess yes. the thing is, he's one of them. I think people. if you don't know who Neil Gaiman is, you need to come out from whatever rock you're living under. And yeah. I hopefully we don't get any Neil Gaiman fans mad at us. I don't think we would. I mean, I enjoy reading his prose they're so well done Mm. and the way he spins stories is so nice yeah Yeah. so okay i'm just trying to figure out where i should go from here okay yeah i'm gonna go to where i thought it just went absolutely crazy and so I thought you would like that yes okay why Milloy? asked the middle-aged woman in the long red dress when Primus had entered the end 
I'm afraid not, he said. I have a personal superstition that until the day I see my brother's corpse cold on the ground before me, I shall drink only my own wine and eat only food I have obtained and prepared myself. This I shall do here if you have no objection. I shall, of course, pay you as if it were your own wine I was drinking. If I might trouble you to put this bottle of mine near the fire to have that chill from it. Now I have a companion on my journey, a young man who is attending to the horses. He has sworn no such oath, and I am sure that if you could send him a mug of burnt ale, it would help take the chill from his bones. The pot maid bobbed a curtsy, and she scudded back to the kitchens. So mine host, said Premis, and the white-bearded innkeeper. Oh, said, said Premis to the white-bearded innkeeper. Little words are important. How are your beds here at the back of beyond? Have you straw mattresses? Are there fires in the bedrooms? And I note with increasing pleasure that there is a bathtub in front of your fireplace. If there's a fresh copper of steaming water, I shall have a bath later, but I shall pay you no more than a small silver coin for it, mind. The innkeeper looked to his wife, who said, Our beds are good, and I shall have the maid make up a fire in the bedroom for you and your companion. Primus removed his dripping black robe and hung it by the fire beside the star's still damp blue dress. Then he turned and saw the young lady sitting at the table. Another guest, he said. Well met, milady, in this noxious weather. At that, there was a loud clattering from the stable next door. Something must have disturbed the horses, said Premis, concerned. Perhaps the thunder, said the innkeeper's wife. Hey, perhaps, said Premis. Something else was occupying his attention. He walked over to the star and stared into her eyes for several heartbeats. You, he hesitated, then with certainty. You have my father's stone. You have the power of Stormhold. The girl glared up at him with eyes of blue sky. Well then, she said, ask me for it, and I can have done with the stupid thing. The innkeeper's wife hurried and stood at the head of the table. I'll not have you bothering the other guests now, my dear ducks, she told him sternly. Remus's eyes fell upon the knives upon the wood of the tabletop. He recognized them. There were tattered scrolls in the vaults of Stormhold in which those knives were pictured, and their names were given. They were old things from the first age of the world. The front door of the inn banged open. Premis, called Tristan, running in. They have tried to poison me. The Lord Premis reached for his short sword, but even as he went for it, the witch queen took the longest of the knives and drew the blade off of it in one smooth practical movement across his throat. For Tristan, it all happened too fast to follow. He entered, saw the star and Lord Premis and the innkeeper and his strange family, and then the blood was spurting in a crimson fountain in the firelight. Get him, called the woman in the scarlet dress. Get the brat. Billy and the maid ran toward Tristan, and it was then that the unicorn entered the inn. Tristan threw himself out of the way. The unicorn reared up its, on its hind legs, and a blow from one of its sharp hooves sent the pot maid flying. Billy lowered his head and ran headlong at the unicorn, as if he were about to butt it with his forehead. The unicorn lowered its head also, and Billy the innkeeper met his unfortunate end. Stupid! screamed the innkeeper's wife, furious and she advanced upon the unicorn, a knife in each hand, blood straining her right hand and forearm, the same color as her dress. Tristan had thrown himself onto his hands and knees and had crawled toward the fireplace. In his left hand, he held hold of the lump of wax, all that remained of the candle that had brought him here. He had been squeezing it in his hand until it was soft and malleable. This had better ought to work, said Tristan to himself. He hoped that the tree had known what she was talking about. Behind him, the unicorn screamed in pain. Tristan ripped a lace from his jerkin and closed the wax around it. 
What is happening? asked Lestar, who had crawled towards Tristran on her hands and knees. I don't really know, he admitted. The witch woman howled then. The unicorn had speared her with its horn through the shoulder. It lifted her off the ground, triumphantly preparing to hurl her to the ground and then to dash her to death beneath its sharp hooves. When impaled as she was, the witch woman swung around and thrust the point of the long, longer of the rock glass knives into the unicorn's eyes and far into its skull. The beast dropped to the wooden floor of, of the inn, blood dripping from its side and from its eye and from its open mouth. First it fell to its knees, then it collapsed utterly as the life fled. Its tongue was piebald and it protruded most pathetically from the unicorn's dead body. Dead mouth. I don't know why I keep adding words here. So sorry. You feel as though it's that kind of night because, yeah, I kept trying to say words, but apparently I don't know how to say. Mm -hmm. The witch queen pulled the witch queen <laughs> pulled her body from the horn, and one hand gripping her wounded shoulder, the other holding her cleaver. She staggered to her feet. Her eyes scanned the room, alighting on Tristran and the star huddled by the fire. Slowly, agonizingly, slowly. She lurched toward them, a fever in her hand and a smile upon her face. The burning golden heart of a star at peace is so much finer than the flickering heart of, the, of a little frightened star, she told them, her voice oddly calm and detached, come as, coming as it was from that blood bespattered face. But even the heart of a star who is afraid and scared is better by far than no heart at all. Tristran took the star's hand in his right hand. Stand up, he told her. I cannot, she said simply. Stand or we die now, he told her, getting to his feet. The star nodded and, and awkwardly resting her weight on him. She began to try to pull herself to her feet. Stand or you die now, echoed the witch queen. Oh, you die now, children. Standing or sitting, it is all the same to me. She took another step toward them. Now, said Tristan, one hand gripping the star's arm, the other holding his makeshift candle. Now walk, and he thrust his left hand into the fire. There was pain and burning such that he could have screamed, and the witch queen stared at him as if he were a madness personified. Then his impro improvised wit caught and burned with a steaming, a steady blue flame, and the world began to shimmer around them. Please walk, he begged the star. Don't let go of me. And she took an awkward step. They left the inn behind them, the howls of the witch queens ringing in their ears. Mm-hmm. I really want to read this book now. It's intense. But it's, yeah. I really enjoyed the movie, and the book is different than the movie for sure, as they always are. What was it called again? Stardust? Stardust, yes. Adding it to my, oh, it's only six hours? Definitely. Audiobooks are the best when you drive a lot and don't want to fall asleep at your bed reading a book. Yes. Yeah, I mean, I just like the way that I like the imagery he puts together and the way that the scene just keeps moving. Mm -hmm. He's such a great writer. Yeah you gain the emotion at the same time as you see that scene moving along and it doesn't it doesn't stall the his word choices aren't repetitive um 
but when he does use it, it's very clipped. Yes. Yes. And then, I agree. And then it's this, and then it's this, which is just a clipped way of keeping you on your toes there. I remember the first book I read by him. Mm-hmm. I just picked up this random book that my brothers had and was like, nah, I'll just read this. We were taking the train from Texas to Missouri and it was like a 24 hour train ride that we decided to all do as a family one time, which was awesome. But this book just enthralled me the in, like for at least 10 hours of the trip. I didn't sleep. I just kind of sat in my seat reading and read and just was lost in this world that he created. It was amazing. And then I turned to one of my brothers and was trying to tell them about this book. And they were, they were like, oh, who's this by? It sounds familiar. I was like, Neil Gaiman. I don't know who he is. And they were like, what? You don't know who he is? Yeah. And then started your education on Neil Gaiman. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Great author. Yes. So let me make sure this is not, or this is the epilogue. Should I read the last page or do you want me to read from the epilogue? Whichever makes most sense for you to read from or is better. Okay. All right. I'm about to read and I'm going to do better voices this time. Thank you, Amy. You're welcome, Laura. Yvain realized that she felt nothing but pity for the creature who had wanted her dead. So she said, could it be that the heart that you seek is no longer my own? The old woman coughed. Her whole frame shook and spasmed with the retching effort of it. The star waited for her to be done. And then she said, I have given my heart to another. The boy, the one in the end with the unicorn? Yes. You should have let me take it back then for my sisters and me. We could have been young again, well into the next age of the world. Your boy will break it or waste it or lose it. They all do. Nonetheless, said the star, he has my heart. I hope that your sisters will not be too hard on you when you return to them without it. It was then that Tristan walked across to Yvain and took her hand and nodded to the old woman. All sorted out, he said. Nothing to worry about. And the palanquin? Oh, mother will be traveling by a palanquin. I had to promise that we'd get to Stormhold sooner or later, but we can take our time on the way. I think we should buy a couple of horses and see the sights. And your mother acceded to this? In the end, he said blithely. Anyway, sorry to interrupt. We are almost done, said Yvain, and she turned back to the little old woman. My sisters will be harsh but cruel, said the old witch queen. However, I appreciate the sentiment. You have a good heart, child. A pity it will not be mine. The starling down kissed the old woman on her wizened cheek, feeling the rough hairs on it scrape her soft lips. 
Then the star and her true love walked away toward the wall. Who was the old biddy? asked Tristan. She seemed a bit familiar. Was anything wrong? Nothing was wrong, she told him. She was just someone I knew from the road. Behind them were the lights of the market, the lanterns and candles and witch lights and fairy glitter, like a dream of the night sky brought down to earth. In front of them, across the meadow, on the other side of the gap in the wall, now guardless, was the town of Wall. Oil lamps and gas lamps and candles glowed and the windows of the houses of the village. To Tristan, then they seemed a dis as distant and unknowable as the world of the Arabian Nights. He looked upon the lights of Wall for what he knew it came to him then with certainty was the last time. He stared at them for some time and said nothing, the fallen star by his side. And then he turned away and together they began to walk toward the east. It's sweet. It is. Is this in the series of books or does it stand alone? I believe it stands alone. Who's in the movie? Oh my goodness. Um, I guess I could look it up. Let me look it up really quick. Yeah, I'll look it up. I want to see. I can see them all. Um, I think Robert De Niro's in it, um, and, oh, yeah. and what's her Michelle Pfeiffer, Charlie Cox, Claire Kim, Danes, Claire Danes plays the Yeah, Henry it's a Cavill. Yeah, I'm so excited about Charlie Cox. He's going to stay as Daredevil. It was announced the other week. Oh, really? Mm -hmm. They said if there is a Daredevil re-added to the MCU, it's going to be him. Mm. Yeah. MTU. You're such a nerd. Our nerddom has no ends. It expands mm -hmm. beyond just these books. Yes. Mm-hmm. <sighs> yes. I like that book. I do too. That's, I thought that it would have some nice little outtakes from it. Yes. But it, I downloaded the audiobook. I will be listening to it. Mm -hmm. They definitely took some liberties with the movie, but it's nice when, I know there's people that think that if it's based on a book, it should go straight to along with the book, but sometimes it's good when they have their own little entities because what they did with, yes. with Stardust was good. I feel like there are times when I have to think about it as two different stories and there are times when I have to accept that they are two different ways of telling a story and it can be hard. You can put a lot of detail into books that's hard to come across in film. It's hard to get across that stuff so you have to figure out a way to do it within the dialogue or somehow Mm -hmm. you know, somebody's memory flows through it. It's a voiceover, you know, you can't just read a detail. And when these books become movies, it cuts so much out of it. It's, I think it's a little bit easier if they become a series. Yes, which is expensive. And a lot of companies don't want to commit to that because they don't know how the first one's going to do or how the whole series will do. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean like a TV series. Yeah. But I then we like, have as big of a following. Yeah. I mean, they've shown that it can, though. There's so many books that turn into such yes, successful 
series. I think I keep getting excited with the idea that Harry Potter would become an actual TV series, but the movies were so big that it's so hard. It's hard to follow up with that cast, though, because the cast is so beloved, and so many people didn't read the books that love the movies, and so many people that read the books also love the movies, so it's... Harry Potter's, it's difficult with, like, a pivotal, like, an ex- it's such an essential part of our life, the Harry Potter, like, the books and the movies, like, mm-hmm. if you're you made t-shirts. generation, you remember waiting for those books to come out, you remember trying yes. to get hold of those books, Yeah, t-shirts for the movies, trying not to have spoilers, lining up for movies, oh, yeah. Even though I think we had assigned seats, didn't we, for those? I think so. But I guess if it's one of those things where there's going to be a movie that's really good, but then when they do it again later, it becomes even better. Like the amount of times that they've done Pride and Prejudice. True. 1996 version for BBC is still like the epitome to me, but everybody has a Pride and Prejudice version that they like. It's interesting because I'm listening to a series right now that's this Chinese Kung Fu fantasy series, Uh and um, it's a new translation of it, and it's supposed to be a much better translation and much more true to the original, but it made a lot of the translation fans very angry the way that it was translated because it's a little bit different from the clunky translations that were done originally Uh, because now more of the culture is understood more of like the language is understood and so the woman who translated now plus the woman translating it now let's just be honest but I was listening to her note at the end of the first book and she was talking about some of the choices she had to make And she said it's really interesting because this series of books is known as the Condor Chronicles or the Condor Stories. She said that whoever translated it first chose to translate this mythical huge eagle basically as a condor. But the story is set in China. Uh There are no condors in China. Condors are indigenous to the Americas. So she said she had to make a choice of was she going to remain true to what she thought it should be based on translating it or according to what everybody knows this as. And so she went ahead and kept it as Condor Uh. because she said, you know, it is for a Western audience. She didn't get flack about that. She got flack about other stuff. But I thought it was interesting, like the choices that she had to make based on the translation exactly that had nothing to do with the original and so then you have to take that to a, like a book making the book into the movie like what can you cut out what can't you cut out and who are you mm-hmm. making my grandmother and I would always have conversations about this with Pride and Prejudice being like <clears throat> well who was it written for was it written for the person playing Elizabeth Bennett or is it written for Mr. Darcy and based on that you're going to have different focuses so exactly it's yeah that's totally true like how are you going to interpret the book because I feel I feel like the book has a lesson for Mr. Darcy's and for Elizabeth Bennet mm-hmm. there are so many ways to look at the book too I don't know of course there are tons of 
English classes and thesis. Yeah, there's there's a PhD in Jane Austen's people can get. Yes, I saw a cookbook today that was, or yesterday I was at Costco and they had a, a Jane Austen's cookbook and I was thinking, I don't think I want to eat any of that food. I have the Jane Austen dating Old British food. Mm. Oh. No. I mean, I could always bring up the Jane Austen dating guide randomly. You could always read from Pride and Prejudice versus Zombies. Oh, it's Pride and Prejudice and Zombies. Oh, and Zombies. Yes. And Zombies, because the, the zombies are included. I did read that book because it was hilarious. Yeah. No, I passed. I read that book. I saw the movie. I know the movie is horribly reviewed, but I enjoy it. I think I, I, think I watched the movie, too. I think it was on an international flight. That's when I usually see the movies that I don't care enough to pay money for or search out somehow. I did like that your book had an epileptic fish, and I just have to take a moment to point out that it that was in your book, Laura, not in Amy's book. That was no, not epileptic, apoplectic. Apoplectic. I heard epileptic fish, and I was like, "How?" I may have said epileptic, but it was. I don't even know how to say that word, obviously. <laughs> we read so good, people. It's amazing how good we read. I mean, mm-hmm. brazier, brazier. <laughs> we had a conversation about this afterwards. They're basically pronounced the same way, but spelled so different. And both French. And both French. Both French. Once for grilling and the other ones for your boobies so yes exactly don't that should not be crossed over at any time because that would not end well please don't set your boobs on fire and don't try to cook with a bra because the bra you can cook with a bra on but don't cook with a bra yeah the bra is like as hot as you think that bra is or as hot as that bra makes you feel it will not cook eggs for you and when I'll get those, no, you I just put the egg in the, Ugh. gross. I just think you're not cleaning that. <laughs> That's so gross. On that note, these are examples of the books you can find and read. <laughs> recipes, egg recipes, Duke recipes. Duke recipes. <laughs> I'm sure there's a Duke cookbook out there somewhere. I'm oh my, but how to impress a Duke with your cooking. I'm just laughing how, I think there is a probably like a how to get a prince with your cooking. Since that is on so many like. Duke Mayonnaise has a cookbook. <laughs> Christmas movies. Oh, the Duke of Mayonnaise. No, Duke's Mayonnaise, like the, <laughs> the brand. Oh. Now that they've taken over everything. Mm. The unofficial Bridgerton cookbook. That's basically a Duke's cookbook. When is the next season coming out? Did they say it's coming out next year, right? Yeah. Well, there's also a Viscount Viscount in there, too. So it's not just a Duke. There's the Viscount and then um, the brothers who are just simple guys with a lot of money. More money than some dukes, as they put it in the books. Hmm. 
But yeah, so we hope that y'all had a great holiday. We're going to be releasing this in the new year. Yes. Happy 2022, people. Yes. Watch out, we don't. (laughs) (laughs) Wait, are we taking a week off? Are we? Are we going to take a week off? Let's look at the dates really quick. We're going to decide with y'all. Wait, oh, wait, no, this is not going into the new year because we'll release this one on the 27th. So. Okay. And then I think we'll probably take the first couple of weeks off in January, maybe, to get ahead on our recordings again. We could do that. What do you think? Um, if y'all are upset about that, just send us a message to complain. We respond very well to complaints. We will immediately correct our behavior and post a podcast as soon as you complain. Yeah, and then we know that you care and you miss us. Yes, mm-hmm. exactly. And if not, we will gladly just record and try and get cut up with our editing and not just put it on the back burner. Yes. Mm-hmm. But in the meantime... We hope you're safe during your holidays or whatever time of year it is that you're listening to this. And go read a book. <laughs>